Hello. I invite you to turn to the prophet, or maybe not even prophet, but a history book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. As you turn there, I want to remind you, if you're new to our fellowship, for the last 11 weeks, we've been walking through this letter of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, and we really believe that because of the season at hand, that God was leading us away from the gospel of Mark for a season, and through the whole summer, we usually go to a different book of the Bible. And so as we pause in the Gospel of Mark, we've landed at Nehemiah because something significant about Nehemiah presents a great evaluation resource for us in this room, and that Nehemiah and the people was rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. For 70 years, the people of God have been in captivity, and Nehemiah being the third fleet, right, returns to Jerusalem with Persian soldiers, uh, people of, who are come from Hebrew background, Israelite background, and they rebuild the wall. But we made acknowledgement last week that more than building the wall that was torn down, God was actually tearing down the hearts of the people and building within the people a renewed faith in him. What do you think about that, right? Like that's what God is doing with us today. He's tearing down the strongholds in our lives and in our heart to rebuild a new faith that wasn't new to say that it, was, it just started, but it's rekindled, it's refueled, that we will keep our eyes on the Lord. And it's appropriate to say, as we have acknowledged through this series, this truth. It's on the screen. Say it with me if you remember it. One, two, three. God will do what he needs to do to fix our eyes on him. Bruh, if you have not realized that, in his word, in the circumstances at hand, You're missing out on the totality of Scripture today, saints of God. God, who is all sovereign, who is in control, is doing something significant. I would say that God is providing grace and mercy for us today in these words. That every one of us is seeing God's hand moving mightily. In what way? That he's doing what he needs to do to fix your eyes and my eyes on him. Why? Because any place else is not God. Any place else does not have eternity at hand. Any place else does not have the Savior of the world given to you. We must look to God. Hallelujah. And so as we looked at this, you know, last week, we looked at a few things that happened in a worship experience, a gathering from chapters 8 All the way to chapters 10, we see this beautiful gathering, and the outcome of this gathering was a threefold motive. The first motive was we learned that these people of God had a renewed covenant with one another. These people of God, secondly, had a renewed conviction among each other. And lastly, we see that we see a renewed commitment to God. Today, I want us. Quickly to move through chapters 11 and 12, 
by just looking at a simple overview and actually get to chapter 13, because today we're going to wrap up our book study. And in God's grace, in God's mercy, I want you to see these three things that we see in chapter 11 and chapter 12 that is significant, but for the sake of our time, I wanted us to get to chapter 13. But first, in these chapters, chapter 11 and 12, we see the people and their rows. There starts to happen a population going on in Jerusalem. You got to imagine, it was desolate. For 70 years, nobody lived there. Only thieves and robbers would come in there to do more damage in Jerusalem. All of Israel, majority of them were in Babylon, in captivity. So when they came back, now they're populating the city itself. And because the population is growing at an extreme level, others had to live outside of the gates, outside of the city in the suburbs, because too much people in the city. We also see in chapters 12 that the, we see the dedication of the wall. The people of God who lived in the city and outside of the city that belonged to Yahweh, Jehovah, gathered together and they dedicated the wall by worshiping God with the reading of scripture, through songs, through adorations, through praise, through confession of sin. And then lastly in chapter 12, we see the provisions for the temple. This has to do with the high priest, with the Levites, and how they took care of the functioning of God's temple. This was the outcry of a confession that, God, we need you. God, we're desperate for you. Are you in need of God today? Are you in need of the Lord? Are we going through the formality of worship? That our feelings dictate what Scripture says, that our emotion right, defines what scripture does not define, right? Like, like we base the authority of our lives on everything else, but what these people have finally surrendered back to, and that's the proclamation of the word of God. And as we get to chapter 13, we see 13 years have passed since Nehemiah and the people arrived in Jerusalem. Nehemiah being the head governor of all Jerusalem by the power of Artaxerxes, the Persian king who lived, who controlled Babylon and all the world. Nehemiah returns back to Babylon after 13 years and a significant shift takes place in Jerusalem when the governor leaves and he leaves for 10 years. 10 years. So we get to a portion of scripture Now, what I want us to do is observe verses 3, 1 to 3, and the remaining of the verses, I want us to survey through it. So would you stand with me in the perfect reading of God's Word? If you're new to our fellowship, we love standing in the reading of God's Word, because it is actually, we saw that it was a heart cry in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, where God's people stood in the reading of the law, which we also call the Scriptures. And this, the first three verses of verse 13, it says, on that day, they what? They what? All right, let me see what it did not say, all right? They got buck wild. They started speaking in unknown tongues. They started falling on their back. They started doing all these fanatic stuff. It didn't say that. It said they what? They read. What are we doing right now, Hawaiians? We're reading. Hallelujah. Thank God that we do what the Bible says. Hallelujah, right? All right, a little bit too much satire. Let's go on. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite 
should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Balaam is a false god. Yet, yet, here we go, our God. Can I get some hallelujahs up in this room, man? Yet our God turned the curse, help me out, into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent, holy, magnificent, heavenly Father. We need you today. We don't need man-made tactics or traditions. We need an orthodoxy of your scriptures. The root of all things that gives life is your word, God. The gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, help me out, was God. We love you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And God's Ohana says, passionately, amen. In Lalo, you may be seated. The title of my message is, We Must Reform. Say that with me, one, two, three. We must reform. When I say the word reform, I don't mean it in a political sense. When I say the word reform, I mean it in a religious sense. To reform is to, br- is to embrace that which was traditionally viewed as truth. It's another word for orthodox. To go back to the original understanding of a position. We must all reform in this room. And for Nehemiah and the people... For many years, hundreds of years, they were unreformed. They began to sin against their perfect God. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, First Samuel, Second Samuel. The people of God sinned against Him, their Creator, their Lord. And God in His patience would redeem them. And a few generations later, they will sin again. If you were generations later after that, God would rescue them. So you see this, let me say, bipolar spiritual attack going on in the people of God. And if there's anything we see in this bipolar spiritual attack, God is faithful to his children. God is faithful to his people. Nehemiah reformed. He brought the people back to a place where all they had was God. He brought them back to this orthodoxy worship where they emphasize not their emotion, not even their experience in Babylon, not their persecution, not their oppression, but the glory of God himself. Are you serious of the glory of God? Did your heart today break for God's glory because of your sin? As I said earlier in the generosity thought, this, this world is not just broken. This world is fallen. This world is dead. And there will never be world peace. Why? Because this world is fallen. In fact, the Bible says that God will destroy this world one day. And the only peace we can have today is not in this world, but in the God who redeems us from this world. This is a reformed view. On Halloween Day, October 31st, 1517, a Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther in Germany 
Wittenberg, Germany, nailed a 95 essay thesis on the Catholic monastery door. And on that 95 word thesis, right, Martin Luther, in his boldness, I believe he had some fear in it, but in his boldness, rebuked the Catholic Church. Now, history says the Catholic Church was actually a good movement when they first started. The Catholic Church was, in some sense, we could say reform. In such a way, right, uh, Eubulus, that we quoted last week, said that he was a part of the conversion of Emperor Constantine of Rome, who became a Christian in the Lord Jesus. All of Rome were Christian because their leader was a follower of Christ. You guys know the history of the Catholic Church, but if you don't know, I will entertain you with it a little bit if you're not bored about the history, but the Catholic Church would run away from Scripture. They would have traditions, even to this day, that does not line up with Scripture. They would put the authority, right, on the church itself, not God, not Jesus. I've been to Naples, Italy, with 55 students from Tennessee in 2011. We went to the first Catholic church in Naples, Italy. There's a castle called Elmo, Castle Elmo. On the other side is Mount Vesuvius. You guys remember Mount Vesuvius, right? And then on this castle, you see abroad a place called Puto Ili. And Puto Ili was the place that we see in the last chapter of Acts where Paul the Apostle landed with Christians that he didn't know. Christianity got up to this point, but somehow Christianity moved beyond Paul, got to Porto Ili. They broke bread together. They loved each other. And a few moments later, he would be sent to Rome and his head was chopped off for the glory of Christ. Right? This, this history helped form the Catholic movement. But then fast forwarding to Martin Luther, he staples 95 issues with the Catholic Church. And I could exhaust you with all the issues, but the main issue was this. You ready? The Catholic Church attempts to deitize God, right? And make man God. How do we know this? The Catholic Church is ran by the Pope. Whatever the Pope says, what? It goes. Well, let me tell you, there's a better pope than that pope. And before I get to his name, I want to be exegetical in our verse today. And out of this 1517 conviction of, of him stapling this essay on the door, we see a great movement that has awakened the Western European area. What was it? The Protestant Reformation. Great theologian and great scholars came out of this movement. There is five doctrines that came out of this movement that we as Ohana Church hold tightly to. And it's the Latin word used, solus. And the word solus is actually the word alone. And there's five doctrines that communicate the solus. For instance, the first doctrine is scripture alone. Right? We believe at Ohana Church is that we don't need signs and visions today. 
We don't care what apostle or prophet comes into this door. We believe the scripture is fulfilled. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to take away from it. Now, if they have a word to say that lines up with scripture, praise the Lord. But it's not new, right? It's not added. It's not take away. God is very clear on scripture. This is what they hold fast to in the Reformation. Secondly, faith alone. That having salvation in God, right, was an understanding of faith. Let me be very clear. This faith is not in you before Jesus. You're not born with this kind of faith. In fact, in Ephesians 2, it says that faith is a gift. We're not born with faith. Therefore, they preach this faith alone doctrine. Thirdly, they preach a grace alone doctrine, meaning we get what we don't deserve. As sinners, we deserve a slap on old coley straight to hell. But in God's grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. You see, you see how it makes the scriptures better, right? When you, when you see the doctrine that way. Fourthly, we see Christ alone. What does that mean? That the scriptures talks about Christ. That the faith we have in God is in Christ. That the grace we've been given by God is because of what? Christ. And ultimately, at the end of our understanding of God, ultimately, whether what we know or what we don't know, it's to his glory alone. Are you with me? Ohana, we hold fast to these doctrines. Yes, there's other secondary doctrines, thirdary doctrines that we hold on to, but when it comes to the core of what we believe, it's these five doctrines that Scripture proclaims. And just like Martin Luther, we rewind back to B.C. era before Christ with Nehemiah and the people, and Nehemiah is doing the same thing. He's reforming God's people back to an orthodoxy view of the scriptures. And as you understand chapter 13, you guys got to understand this, okay? Chapter 13 starts off like a movie. One of those movies that starts with the ending plot. You guys remember those kind of movies, right? It doesn't start from the beginning. It actually starts from the ending plot. It comes to the beginning. And then the rest of the two-hour movie is the beginning part. You guys know that? I don't even know if there's a term for it. But that's how you need to view uh, this chapter of Nehemiah chapter 13. It starts with the ending plot. And I want you to be very clear that as we survey through this, we can't do it verse-by-verse expository. All we can do is survey through this chapter. And as we look at Nehemiah and how he reforms Jerusalem, he did so primarily through the Word of God. Look at verses 1 to 3. We see it very clear. On that day, they read from the what? Book of Moses. The Book of Moses in the Old Testament days is known as the Scriptures. For them, the New Testament didn't happen yet. So what they trusted in, in Christ, in Scripture, was the Torah, was the Pentateuch, was the law, was the book of Moses. We learned the last couple weeks. And Nehemiah is actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 6. And he's undressing the ungodly marriages between Jerusalem and with the pagan people groups called the Ammonites and the Moabites. Now, I want to give you some biblical history. The Ammonites and the Moabites were created out of incest relationship. Abraham, the father of our faith, had a nephew named Lot. And at Sodom and Gomorrah, his family ran because the angel of the Lord told him to run away and don't turn back. But his wife turned back while the city was being destroyed. 
And the Bible says in Genesis that his wife was turned into a pillar of salt. Therefore, there was only Lot and his two daughters. And as they hid it out until God told them, the daughters, right, seduced their father with drunkenness. Each daughter had sexual relationships with their dad. And then out of incest, out of sin, listen to me, two pagan nations were birthed. The Ammonites and the Moabites. And because of this, God told the people of Israel not to intermarriage with these pagans. However, they did not listen. Us Hawaiians, we call them what? Hothead. But the Okole, soft. So get cushioned for fall down, right? That's what God does. Only one of you got that. I can't really see your faces because you're masking all that, right? But that's the reality, right? Now, now, I want you to be very clear. This time at the cross, even that time, the Moabites gets redeemed, actually. To the story of Ruth, who was a Moabite, in the beginning verses, she repents of her sins for herself and her people. And do you guys know who is in the genealogy of Jesus? Boaz. Do you guys know who is Boaz's mother? Uh, not mother, wife, sorry, Ruth. Ruth is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in chapters 1. And you got to understand that God was serious about his law to not intermingle with pagan people. And they did just that. They intermingled with pagan people. Therefore, Nehemiah returns after 10 years from leaving Jerusalem and being in Babylon. He returns to install God's people, and reform them in the written word of God. And the word of God did for the people of God and Nehemiah what it does for us today. You ready? Number one, it convicts us of our sin. Can I get a hallelujah in there, right? And it causes us to repent, right? The idea of repenting is that turning from one way of living totally to another way of living. That we see this as a past life. We're not coming back to that. We're going straight for God. And in His sovereign grace, He is redeeming us continuously. And what was the sinful, sinfulness in Jerusalem at this time? Intermarriage. Pagan marriage. But the beauty of the word in these verses is that God's people connected their reality of sin as an offense to his word and therefore separated themselves from these pagan people. Can I get a witness out here? Like there should be joy in this. Proverbs 28 says this, that whoever conceals his transgression, meaning covers up, hides their sins, will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them, help me out, will obtain mercy. This is the beauty of God's redemptive plan for us, that he will not leave us worried at, he will not forsake us worried at, but he is with us and he will redeem us to the very end. That's the beauty of the word today. And so what I want us to look at is I want to look at three ways Nehemiah reforms Jerusalem from the written word, from the scriptures. Number one, Nehemiah reforms the temple. As we look at our verses today, specifically verses 1 to 9, there are major events that Nehemiah discovers when he returns back from Babylon and he addresses them head on. He didn't wait. We don't even see if he got counsel. 
He just attacked the jokers, right? He said it right there. Look at these things that happened when he returned. There was an enemy now living in God's temple, right? This, let's say this thug was Tobiah. You may remember that he was one of the opposers, opposers to the building of the wall. In chapters 4 to 6, he even planned an attack to kill all of God's people and Nehemiah while they were building the wall. And here's a biblical principle for us today, right? The enemy never sleeps until he has what he wants. Say it with me. One, two, three. The enemy never sleeps until he has what he wants. And this is Tobiah. We believe that it goes deeper than Tobiah. We believe that he was influenced and he was governed by Satan himself. We we, we treat this life, listen to me, don't we treat this life like a dance? Like when we come to church, oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's all giggly and fun, right? Here's the problem. People are dying, not knowing God, spending eternity in hell. Is that fun? So why should I preach a message that makes people feel better about themselves? Why should preachers preach a message to make people feel better about themselves? No, their issue is their self. They don't need to be feel better about themselves. We got enough character classes to talk about being feel better about yourself. No, at the core of who we are in humanity, we are a disgrace. We are damned. We are not perfect. You ain't all that. I ain't all that. We all, we together, you and we ain't all that. That's the reality. And Nehemiah is making a great point right here that what has happened in this 10 years is that the enemy attacked God's people. There's a shift. They're no longer covenant with God. They're no longer convicted and they're no longer commitment to the work of God through the scriptures. The psalm says this about the enemy. Psalms 42, 9 says the enemy is an oppressor. Psalm 74, 3 says the enemy is the destroyer of the Lord's temple. Think about Tobiah, right? Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah 6, 24 says the enemy is a terror. Let's go to the New Testament. John 10, 10, the Mecca of enemy scripture. It says this, the enemy comes to steal. Help me out. Kill and destroy. Peter 5, 8 says the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So why you dance the great dance, Christians? There's an enemy not dancing. He's fighting. Paul did not say in the New Testament that we got to dance the great dance. Paul said we got to fight the good fight. Man of God, you have to fight for your families. Man of God, you have to fight for your marriages. Man of God, you got to stop catching feelings and blaming everything on other people but your own heart, man of God. Women, you need to submit. Right? Not to look down upon, but because God not just called you to submit, but he's called all people to submit. Submit to him. Women, watch your tone. Watch your mouth. Children, pull up your pants. Boys, put away the video games. Be a man. Are you with me? You sure? Or have this COVID season made you soft? Good. Because it's that soft that God would break you. The enemy never sleeps until he has what he wants. Secondly, we see the Levites were forsaken. The workers of the Lord's house were not being cared for in verses 10 to 14. They would have a full day of voluntary work in the temple of God. Voluntary. They would do all the 
the, the, the action steps that was put on them as job descriptions to take care of the temple of God, but they weren't fed, they weren't waged, they, weren't, they, were, mis- they were neglected. Therefore, all the Levites, after work was done, would have to go to the grain fields and provide for their family. It's like you going to work a nine-to-five job, but you're not getting paid, and after that, you got to go work some more just to feed your family. And the role of the temple was to compensate the Levites for their worship to God in taking care of the temple. Verses 8 and 9 and 11, we see that Nehemiah doesn't stay quiet. Man, Nehemiah must have been on Kanaka Hawaiian. Because this brother came strong. He corrects the sin. Right? He physically throws Tobias' junk out of the temple of God. Sound like, sound familiar in the New Testament? He flipped tables. He whipped jokers, right? He rebukes the leaders. He don't, re- look at me. He's talking about God's leader. He's not rebuking the politician, the president, the mayor, right? The governor, the outside people. He's actually rebuking God's people. The priests, we could call them the pastors, for not taking care of the Levites. I mean, brother man was no joke. He wasn't scared of anybody. But he wasn't scared of anybody because he had a fear for the Lord. Do you fear the Lord or do you fear man today? And something beautiful happens out of this correction, right? Number four, revival breaks out. Can I get a witness? Oh, revival breaks out. How do we know revival breaks out? Look at the verses, verses 11 to 12. It says, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. You guys ready for the revival? The revival is coming up. Here you go. Ho, Pa, here you go. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and oil into the storehouses. You cannot see anything but God's goodness in rebuke, in correction. You, me, need correction. Why? Because it is in correction we will experience God the way God has called us to experience it. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead, but now I'm alive. God has made you and me one. Therefore, the grace of God is a grace that extends to others. The same grace we preach is the same grace we love people with. And Nehemiah in God's sovereign grace does for the people of God that no other corrupt leader would do. Correct them in their sin where they're at. You guys feel it, man? You guys feel, right? You guys sense the the urgency of the word this morning? Or are you just here just to be here because you're looking for your own message today? No. The message does not change. Whether we're talking Genesis to Revelation, the message does not change. It's the same message. God's glory. God's goodness. God's justice. God's wrath. Right? And the outpouring of this revival. Right? The spirit of God awakening God's people. This is what's happening. Nehemiah appoints new godly officials now to handle God's treasury. I believe what he means by that is that he kicked out the high priest Elisheb. Elisheb, for some reason, gets related to Tobiah. Somehow Tobiah marries someone in uh, Elisheb's 
courts, a household. And that's how Tobiah got into the God's courts. And Nehemiah makes a confession to God. And I want you to see this very clear. He makes a confession to God and crying out to God. And he says, God, remember me. As, I, as we preach, as the Alakai preach these hard sermons every week, we're a little different church. As we preach these hard sermons, this is the cry of our heart. God, remember us. Remember us. This, this is identifying that this statement was far beyond just life itself on earth. But when judgment would come, God, when you would bring your judgment at the end of the age, would you remember me? Would you remember me for eternity? Nehemiah reforms the temple. Secondly, Nehemiah reforms the Sabbath. Nehemiah was very concerned that when he returned, he saw the people rejecting not just the day of the Sabbath, but the God who installed the Sabbath. God commanded his people in the Old Testament to rest on the final day. Why should we rest? For those of you who don't come from church backgrounds, this is why the Sabbath was significant. Number one, to reflect on God's beauty, right? And number two, to reflect on God's goodness. The Sabbath doesn't start at Nehemiah. It begins at creation, right? That God on the final day of creation rested. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. He didn't rest because he was tired. In fact, it didn't take God that much to create this world. He just said, let it be, and it happened. So why did God rest? Well, there's two reasons why God rests. God wanted to reflect on his creation. And secondly, God saw that the bugger was ornal. Those of you in the mainland, means good, delicious, all right? Right? He saw his creation, and that's why he rested. And so when we rest, we rest to see that God is good. God is faithful. But these people were working. These people were working on those days. They were not observing the Sabbath as being a holy day as God installed it and as he affirmed it in the Ten Commandments. You should keep this day holy, meaning set apart for me alone. And James Hamilton says this, that the Sabbath was intended to be a protected space in which Israel could meditate on the Bible and rehearse the mercies of God. The Sabbath was for worship. The Sabbath was to be hallowed, made holy, so that people could enjoy God. This concern for the Sabbath, therefore, is not legalistic. This concern for the Sabbath, rather, is for the good of the people. The concern for the Sabbath is for people to know God. It's hard to know God when you're doing too much work. That should convict us in this room today. But verses 15 to 24 we don't see this pursuit, therefore Nehemiah corrects it. I've said it before, I've said it last week, I've said it in years past. I don't believe today, right, we are bound to a Sabbath. Since Jesus finally came and he fulfilled it in his name, I believe the Sabbath tells us today simply to rest. I don't, we know this because Colossians says don't let people put burdens on you for festivals New moons or Sabbaths, right? The Sabbath is fulfilled. We find rest in God. Now, I do believe that that rest should be legitimate, right? That we should have a day where we can just reflect on God. If it's Sunday, praise the Lord. But we don't see in the New Testament 
Christ saying you got to do this in the Sabbath. No, we see in the New Testament a beauty of Christ fulfilling the Sabbath. He is good. He is perfect. But as we look at this word Sabbath, I believe today, like Nehemiah and the people, we are bound, not specifically to the Sabbath, but to the Scriptures. Right? Living in an electronic social media world and other forms that could be distractions, we need rest, hallelujah, to be able to meditate on the Scriptures. Why the Scriptures? Because it declares to us, just like Nehemiah and the people, the goodness of God. So I want you to hear this because there's tension right now, right? Whatever kind of theological background you come from. If you read with the intent that in order for you to be in right relationship with God, you must do what is pleasing before him, I would say to you, you are missing out on the beauty of true redemption. Hear me out. Nothing you do can make you right with God. I'm going to say on Hawaiian terms, okay? Here we go. You ready? All right. Nothing you do can make you porno with the Lord. It is only by God's grace alone that he makes us right with himself. And this is what I call the gospel. And I am concerned for you out there who will use social media. And you put all your ducks, all your theology, all your doctrines in politicians and persuasions and social injustice, social gospel we would call it. And you're missing out of the greatest language of all. You ready? That Christ came to die for all of that. If you're more concerned about vaccines, let me tell you something, Hawaiians. Hawaiians at heart. Listen to me. I'm getting local boy right now, okay? Hear me out, okay? Listen to me, all right? Social distancing. Hear me out. May save us. May. May save us, okay? From the virus. But social distancing will not save us from damnation. Let me say it again in a different way. Masks may save us. May. Maybe. Maybe not. May save us from the virus. But listen to me. The mask won't save us from eternity spent in hell. The only message that will save us is a message that is not random acts of kindness, but it's a verbal, articulated message that comes from a verbal book called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I feel like we haven't forsaken that as Christians. No matter what president is president, you will never be happy. Why? Because they're not Jesus. No matter what governor and mayor... We have. They'll never free you from the damnation of hell. Only the God that Nehemiah declares, the God-man, Jesus. Oh, Kaho, you young, you fire brimstone, you best believe it. Because I'm talking about you. Every one of you. And me too. We're all fallen in need of Christ. My heart breaks for social media, even today, as we have on social media, because I will hear 100,000 messages on how much God values the human. Everything is about the human. Let me be very clear. Above everything else, God values his glory. He doesn't value you above everything else. He values his glory. 
And he made his glory known through his son. And here's the joy of the gospel. As sinners, depraved people, separated from God, the gospel teaches us this. We can be a part of his glory. Now that's the message that we'll preach. That's the message that will save you, not just from the virus, but from damnation. And not just from damnation to heaven, but from one evil leader to a righteous leader. From the enemy of sin to the righteousness of our Abba Father, God. You should embrace that. You should feel in your na'al because of Scripture, the pressing of the Spirit, preaching, speaking, delivering to you from the sufficiency of Scripture that God has rescued you from the inside out. By this means, we have been reformed in our view of the Sabbath. Lastly, Nehemiah reforms the people. He reforms the people. This section will cause many of us problems from verses 23 to 29 because in reforming the people, some things took place that was tough on Nehemiah's side and the people's side. In verse 23, we continue to see an unyoked marriage. Teenagers in this room, people who are single, don't just hook up and shack up with anybody. Make sure you're equally yoked with them. But this wasn't true for God's people who knew the word of God. Secondly, we see that children no longer spoke the language of Judah, but they spoke every other pagan language that they were married into. This was bad because the written word was written in their Judean language, Judean language. Three, and here's the hard part we're going to have here because we live in a liberal society. A ceremony discipline takes place. Nehemiah, as the governor, literally rebukes, corrects, Curse, now not cussing Hawaiians, okay? Not cussing at them, but cursing them to the covenant that they disobeyed in chapter 10. But also something that we cannot imagine. They, he physically beat those who disobeyed God. A scholar said that, and he believes that this, that this was a prescribed style of punishment to bear. At this time, a beating in Jerusalem was far less than a stoning. In their judicial law, by right, they had the right to stone anyone who were false prophets and who continued to, and who lived in sin. And so as we view this, may we view life today, thank you, God, that you've given me an opportunity to confess my sins. That God, you didn't punish me. You didn't damn me. But because of your holiness, you corrected me. You reproved me. And what he does, he reminds us of the sins of the father. With King Solomon. Look at verses 26 to 27. He said, did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, there was no king like Solomon. He was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, here we go, you ready? Foreign, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all these great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Your answer should be what? No. You see, the sins of the father pressed out to the generations to come. 
And I'm not fooled that we don't struggle with this in this room. Please don't give up on the gospel. No matter how hard it is, don't just say yes to every conversation that somebody is talking about. Listen, observe, meditate. Then like Nehemiah, if God speak the truth, correct. We see number five, the main problem is finally discovered in chapter 13. And here's the main problem. Look at verses 28, 29. And one of the sons of Jeho- Jehoiada, the son of Eliashabib, the high priest, you guys ready? Was the what? Son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. And these are the words he said. Remember them, O God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So you got to see two major names, right? Tobiah and Sanballat in chapter 13. Both allies were oppressors to God's people. And as Nehemiah was gone for 10 years, they figured out a way to get into Jerusalem. How? Through the covenant, they said they would not break. What is that? Intermarriage. Intermarriage. I want you to see this very clear. Tobiah, Sanballat, they did not use military tactics, but they used an evil persuasion. They've taken wives from Israel. They've taken over the temple in Israel, and they've taken over the people in Israel. And I want you to hear this very clear, guys. They took from the people what was only God's to have. What was this? Their heart. You try steal something from God. Imagine your damnation. Right? Nehemiah saw this. So he used the governor's position that he had from Artaxerxes for the glory of God himself. How did he do this? Look at the text. Bruh, Nehemiah was on thug. He was on gangster at heart. He never let these brothers slide by. Look at what he said. He said he chased them away. And secondly, he said a curse. Now this curse is a little different curse. We call this an imprecatory prayer. Meaning that he asked God to remember their sins. He asked God to remember their judgment and their wrath that awaits them. But Nehemiah ends in verse 31b with his story. And he says this again, remember? Lord, remember me, my God, for good. I will let you know that Following the popular way of this world is probably one main reason why you shouldn't follow it. Even for me, when it comes to theologians of the faith and scholars, I don't like to read all these fancy televangelists, you know, and all these guys that makes money off of the prosperity gospel and all this. I like to read dead scholars. For real. People who no longer live. 
who fought the good fight, who was like Nehemiah, what didn't care about popular persuasion and titles and money. But like Nehemiah, they saw joy in the boldness of the declaration of the scriptures. I pray you could say the same prayer. I pray today that you could say the same prayer and that you could say, God, remember me. Remember me for good. As the team comes us to come up to lead us, I want to answer a question. How should we respond? It's very simple. If we've been true to the text, the text states this. We must confess and be reminded of the need for correction and repentance. You need to be corrected. You need to be corrected. You need to be corrected. I need to be corrected. Correction never stops. Why? Because we human and we fall short of God's glory. We need correction. Many people who have left our fellowship, right, was because of correction. Many who have come back to our fellowship, help me out, is because of correction. And listen to me. When nobody else in your family or those you're connected with is not living in correction, go back to the scriptures and beg God like Nehemiah to correct others in grace, in mercy. And what I want us to do is I want us to stand. And I want us to make four confessions of this confession. As I end this confession, look, I want you to read it again. How should we respond? We must confess and be reminded of the need for correction and repentance. But it ends this way. It's up on the screen. We can only do this through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the sufficiency of the scriptures. Guys, stop counting on signs. Stop counting on modern day dreams and prophets and apostles. You want a sign from God? Do you want a sign from God? Yes or no? Here it is. It's sufficient. Stop following all these social media personalities that say, I have a word for you. God gave me a fresh word and a new word for you. No. If it's fresh and new, it's here. It's canonized. It's complete. It's enough. So let's make four confessions. I'm going to say it for you one time. I want you to say it with me after that. Let's make a confession of repentance by saying this, Lord, I need you. One, two, three. Lord, I need you. Second confession. Let's acknowledge the Lord. By saying this, Lord, you don't need me. One, two, three. Lord, you don't need me. And a third confession. Let's cherish God by saying this. You have chosen me. One, two, three. You have chosen me. And let's declare our devotion to him. Lord, I choose you. One, two, three. Lord, I choose you. That's the true gospel. I want you to see. That the gospel without a response is incomplete. Therefore, we're going to respond today. And we're going to respond today based on what the Savior and Lord of the world told us in the gospel of John. 
In John 5, 24, it says, truly, truly. All right? In other words, this is that time, you know, when your mother growing up, your Hawaiian mother slapping you in the head. Hey, Hawaiian, listen up. Remember that time? Oh, maybe you never grew up with a short little five-foot Hawaiian mother like me, all right? Slap me in the head. All right? This is what it means right now. Truly, truly. Back! No, don't slap each other, guys. Don't slap each other, okay? That's what it is. That's what it means. Truly, truly. Pay attention. I say to you, whoever hears my word, hears my word, not feels my word, not follow my back and experience other tongues, but hears my word and believe him who sent me. Here you go. You ready? Say it with me. One, two, three. Has eternal life. Would you give God a clap of praise today? He does not come into judgment. Woo! I'm on the football field already, Dennis. He is not come into judgment, but has passed ah, from death into life for the glory of Christ. As for me in the house, we'll worship the true Jesus of Scripture. As for me and my house, we will worship the true Holy Spirit of Scripture. As for me and my house, we will worship the true Father of Scripture. As for me and my house, we will worship the true Jesus that is proclaimed through the life of Paul, through Peter, through Silas, through Barnabas, through the disciples, through Nehemiah. We will proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ who was, who is, and who is to come. That is the glorious of truth. We can't just come up here and just get all emotionally wild for the sake of getting emotionally wild because your pastor is getting emotional right now. No. Negative. We're chained because of the hearing and reading of the word of God. It's sufficient. It's enough. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's true. Well, they endured world wars in history of all time. Every other book and scholar books that no longer exist today, but the scriptures have tested the time of humanity, and we have seen all creation come through humanity through this word, and it is good. So I may not be Hawaiian enough. We may not be Kanaka enough. We may not be American enough. We may not be whatever we are right now, right? Humanistically speaking. Perfect. Because God is enough. Woo! He is enough. 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 He's enough. And check out this. The penalty of sin for those who believe in him. You ready? For us. Pauhana. Tetelestai. Oh, Pau. It is finished. Now we don't fight for victory. The battle's already won. We fight. Help me out from victory. We're victorious. But what humbles us is to remind us through the scriptures that we're still sinners saved by a gracious, merciful God. 
a popular personality preacher in the mainland made a comment on his social media feed in the beginning of COVID-19. And it defined him to me as a false prophet. Many of you follow him on your own Instagram. I see, I see some of you quote him. And he said this, people, Christian, stop asking God for forgiveness. You are forgiven. It's incomplete, but though we're complete, though we are forgiven, we must understand practically, as Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body? The Christ, the Messiah. His name is.